This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 328 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the podcast Dan Cooper. Dan is a veteran of the Australian SAS. He is an endurance athlete and also a human performance coach. So this was an incredible conversation, really getting a different perspective from within special forces and applying it to the other tactical professions. And then we really explored the mental resilience factor as well. Before we get to this interview, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible this podcast is for people looking for a project like this. And as I say over and over again, this is a free library for you, the audience. Use it individually, use it in your department. All I ask is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so that we can get them to the ear holes of everyone on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dan Cooper. Enjoy. So, Dan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. This is always a tricky one because you're in Australia and I'm in America and I have to really focus not to screw up the dates. <laughs> but thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. And it was Mick Strelli that uh, connected us, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah so thank you to Mick. Um, so where on planet Earth are we finding you today? 
Uh, so I live in Brisbane in Australia, um, which is kind of on the northeast of Australia. So um, just kind of ended up up, after he, up here after I finished my career with the military. So just here working now, looking after my kids and working on a PhD. So um, kind of pretty relaxed, but still a little bit to do. Excellent. So speaking of your early life then, so where were you born and what was your family dynamic? So what did your parents do and how many siblings? Yeah, so I was born into sort of uh, like your average sort of family. So mum and dad um, had an older brother and a younger sister. And we sort of grew up outside of Sydney in New South Wales in Australia. Um, and I spent most of my life sort of in the lower Blue Mountains out there. So kind of on the fringe of sort of semi-rural type things. So I spent a lot of time playing around in the bush. Um, you know, I had some friends with a lot of property, that sort of stuff. So we were able to go off exploring. Um well, my parents were sort of your normal sort of, you know, dad was a labourer or a bricklayer, sorry. Uh, mum was a stay-at-home mum. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of thing that you kind of expect in just your working-class family. Um, pretty normal schooling. To be honest, there was nothing really that significant from my childhood um, except a couple of people that I kind of realised now played quite a significant role. So two of them were... Uh, I was fortunate enough to know my great-grandmother when I was growing up, so I knew her until my sort of early teens. And she grew up uh, sort of the early 1900s, so she went through World War One, She went through the Great Depression, World War Two, all these sort of things. So she had a really good outlook on, you know, what life was like and how difficult it could get and then just the reality of when things are tough, you've just got to get on with what you need to do. Um, so I used to spend a, a fair bit of time with her around school holidays. Uh, I'd go and stay with her for a couple of days. So um, it wasn't until, you know, you sort of get enough wisdom that you realise just how important that exposure was when I was quite young. Uh, and then the second one was my, my actual grandmother who was raised from her um, and she had very similar belief systems and that sort of thing. So I spent a lot of time with her and then my old man was from that same side. Um, so there was like gener three generations that I got to spend time with that had quite an impact on the way I developed and the belief systems that I got, um, which I think was quite crucial to my ability to sort of then go and take on what I did later in life. Um, so that side of things, I think, um, you know, at the time you don't realise, but then you understand later on just how important these people are. Um, and then sort of sporting-wise, I sort of was uh, in a small school, so I was quite good uh, in a sporting context within a small school. But then when I went to a, a larger environment, I was sort of more mediocre, um, no real standout sort of thing there. Academically sort of was going okay. Uh, like a lot of boys, once I got to a certain point, I sort of lost a little bit of interest in school, um, sort of took interest in other things like cars, alcohol, that sort of stuff. Um, so in the later years, my grades dropped off. Um, so from there, left school, became an apprentice cabinet maker or sort of shop fitter, uh, did my trade, and then at the back end of that, I joined the army, and that's when sort of things um, kind of took a, a change once we got busy with the army, and then that set off like pretty much a whole other career for me. Brilliant. Well, back to your great-grandma for a sec. So she witnessed World War One, the Great Depression, and World War Two. That's, you know, in an element also kind of history repeating itself. You know, we were at war, then there was peace, and we were at war again as, as a, as a, you know, a planet almost. Did she have any observations of, through her whole life of, you know, 
what we could do better as, as future generations? Um, potentially. It's hard to say because I was so young. You kind of miss a lot of the stuff. Um, but she used to tell a lot of stories about when she was growing up and that sort of thing when she was talking to me. Um, so like, I do remember being chased around a lot with the feather duster for doing things wrong. Um, so she was still quite agile in her old age. Um, but she like one of the stories that always stuck with me was her father was a lumberjack. Uh, and back then they used to cut down the trees by hand with a saw or an axe. Uh, and she'd talk about during the Great Depression in the middle of winter, he was that arthritic, he could hardly walk. Uh, and because of the cold, he'd be in pain getting out of bed. And she'd say he was almost crawling out of the house to go to work. And then he'd sort of go down to where they were going to cut the trees down for the day, sit around the fire till he got warm enough, and then he'd go to work. And one particular morning, she seen him, uh, in her words, she said he was literally crawling down the stairs to get out of the house. And she was a young girl, and she sort of said, oh, why don't you take the day off? Why don't you sort of rest if you're in that much pain? And he turned around, and his response was pretty much, you know, if we want to have food on the table tonight, then I've got to go and cut down some trees. So, you know, when you're young, you don't realise the full impact of that story, but it kind of stuck, or well, obviously it stuck with me, um, to, you know, the reality of, you know, life can be difficult, but you've just got to continue doing what needs to be done sort of thing. So um, she used to tell a lot of stories around that. Um, and she was just sort of, you know, just generally a very tough woman. So, um, you know, if you hang around someone like that for long enough, some of it will always wash off on you. Yeah, well, it seems like that's a that's a thing as well with, with some of the people that I've had on here that, you know, have gone on to do physically and mentally extreme you know, it's extremely hard job. So, so go through hardship. And I think that we forget as a society, you know, myself included, that, that I'm sitting here now in this house in Florida and as the air conditioner's on because, oh my goodness, it was 76. So I had to turn it down. <laughs> the, our day to day life is so gentle that, you know, we have to remind ourselves, you know, how resilient the humans are, whether it's a, you know, a virus going around the planet or whether, like you said, it's just sheer hard work. Yeah, yeah, I think we often forget that. Um, and sort of, you know, just like an observation I've made is that, you know, I've got young kids now, so I sort of see things a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, and when you're growing up, your parents sort of say to you, you know, they want you to have an easier life than what they had. And their parents, you know, wanted them to have an easier life. And I'd like my kids to have more opportunity than me. But you're kind of, in a way, almost taking away their opportunities to develop the mental strengths. You know, the more barriers you move out of the way you know the less sort of physical and mental hardship that they're exposed to the the less chance they have to develop these tools that are really crucial later in life so you know for me it starts to become you know what do i need to move out of the way and what do i need to just leave there for them to solve um, and i'm really big on you know not solving problems until i really have to with my kids uh, and i sort of i was growing up in the same sort of way where you know my parents would let me go and do things and get into trouble um like not real trouble, but a little bit of trouble, and but solve my own problems. So, you know, I had an understanding of, you know, how I could take risks, you know, what were the consequences of poor decisions, and then you sort of, you know, how to solve my own problems, get out of my own sort of situations. So, uh, you know, I think when you look back, people have been capable of some really amazing things. And, you know, like you said, yeah, I think we forget about a lot of what we can do just because we've never had to. Absolutely. Well, you said you were, um, you know, working as a cabinet maker. What was that pivotal point where you decided to transition from that into the Australian military? 
Um, so I just always had an interest in it. Like even at school, I remember uh, there was a magazine that came out and one of its first issues was about the British SAS uh, and their role in counterterrorism uh, in the embassy siege. And so that really intrigued me, just the idea that, you know, there were people out there that had that capacity or that level of skill. Um, but at that time, it was one of those things where if you don't know anyone that does it, it's kind of something that someone else does or it seems out of reach. You know, it's just sort of pie in the sky type of stuff. Um, and then I'd always had an interest in the military and my brother went into the military and he had some really good stories uh, from within the infantry. So, you know, cabinet making was good, but it's kind of fairly monotonous and repetitive. So it wasn't really something that I ever intended to really stick with, but it was good to have a trade and coming from, you know, a family of sort of generational tradesmen, that was kind of, you know, get a trade that way you've always got something to fall back on. Um, so, but my real desire was to go and check out the army and get into the infantry and then potentially try for special forces selection. So uh, I joined the army, I uh, got offered to go to a normal infantry battalion or our uh, paratroopers, which is sort of a little bit similar to the British, um, but there's no selection course. You kind of just do a fitness assessment and then off you go. Uh, and at the time, I'd had a, well, I was afraid of heights, so I thought the best way to confront that was to go into the airborne and just start jumping out of planes. So uh, off I went. Now, how did that work for you? I, I was um, totally fearless as a kid, and then I, out of the blue, I cannot put my finger on. There's, there's one memory, but I don't know if it's real or if it's manufactured of me falling on like a uh, playground, adventure playground, and that causing it, but I developed a fear of heights in my teens. And then when I joined the fire service, fire academy, again, it was the same thing. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to have to climb this hundred foot ladder now. So, you know, it's now, it's now or never. And it worked. I was like, oh, I'm not scared anymore. Okay. What was your, your, um, journey through the fear of heights in your experience? Yeah. So I couldn't pinpoint where it came from. I think it was just something that I've had. It's just one of those things that's kind of, I don't know, probably a survival thing. Um, but, yeah, so I was sort of uncertain how I would go. Um, and then we go down there, and it's quite a, a rigorous training process before you go there. And they have a, a board down there, and on the top of it, it says knowledge dispels fear, um, which in a, in a way I agree with most for most part. Um, so they go through, and it's just a couple of weeks of just drilling and drilling in the specifics of parachuting. So they break it down into sort of its chunks, then you do all that separately, and then – you'll bring all the chunks together and perform the skill, you know, and then they progress it to try and make it as close as they can to the reality of jumping out of a plane. Um, and then you sort of go up for your first jump. And at that stage, I'd never been in an aircraft, um, you know, sort of when I was growing up, we didn't really holiday a lot. It was more just around, you know, financial reasons and then just the amount of work that my old man was doing. Um, so I'd never been in an aircraft. The first time up was like a military cargo aircraft. And then, it was more so the fear of balking at the door and not getting out than the fear of actually jumping out. So, um, and it's not really so much the fear of jumping, it's more the fear of the parachute not opening and having to deal with that problem. Um, but yeah, I got out fine and then sort of, I think I've done maybe upwards around 80 jumps over my career. Uh, and to be honest, I've never really been comfortable with the idea of jumping. There's always been a bit of nerves around it, um, but I understand the process. You know, I try and be rational about it uh, and then just sort of get it done. 
Yeah, well, that phrase that they had, knowledge dispels fear, that, that's a philosophy I've, I've agreed with as well, because, you know, what we do, there are so many elements that we have to train for. And it's just that confidence in your skills, I think, is the biggest enemy of fear, but the, the doubt is the real fear. If you know you haven't put the work in, that's when the real fear creeps in. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and we'll probably touch on it a bit later, but that's kind of a lot of where my PhD work now is going, sort of around that sort of threat response and then confronting these sort of high levels of threat and then how you go about solving the problems. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, we'd love to explore that later. Um, so then you got into the para. Um, what was your journey from there into SAS? Yeah, so I got into the paras. Um, so I was there for just over three years and I think it was maybe about two years into it, uh, we got deployed to Timor uh, as a peacekeeping mission because there was a fair bit of unrest there. Um, and I was going to do selection. I'd planned to do selection before we left while during that period uh, because we hadn't deployed in Australia for a long time. I decided to wait another 12 months. So I did the Timor deployment, uh, which was a really interesting period of my life because we hadn't deployed for so long that the logistical side of keeping an army the size we had fed and cleaned and all the things that go with it just wasn't there. So the actual logistics was slow to keep up with the speed of the deployment. Uh, so we spent, I think it was around three weeks before we had running water to have a shower or a fresh meal. Uh, and then the whole time we were over there, we were pretty much just sleeping on the cement for six months, just in buildings that we'd sort of come across or were disused. Uh, so as far as living conditions go, that's probably one of the toughest deployments I've done. Um, as far as work goes, it wasn't, uh, it was never opposed and to us and it wasn't a high level of threat. Um, but a lot of guys came down with sort of dengue, with malaria. Um, there was a lot of sort of uh, stomach viruses or bugs going around. So like we, you were sick for probably half of it uh, and just living sort of like almost in semi-field type of thing. So that side of things, it was sort of a really long trip. Um, but again, that sort of shaped things for the future. So coming off the back of that, I did, I think it was around eight or nine months in the battalion still. Uh, and then I did selection after that. So going into the selection course, which was only three weeks, I kind of used the experience from Timor as my relevance for just what I was capable of enduring. Uh, so the selection course was short and fairly intense, but compared to the six months of sort of really poor living conditions, it was nothing that I didn't think I could do. Um, so to be honest, I sort of didn't have too many problems getting to the end of selection and then it was more so whether, you know, they seen what they needed to see in me to go through and obviously they did. So I was success or successfully completed that and then moved into the training cycle on the back of it. Brilliant. Now back to Timor for a second. I'm, you know, my memory's kind of failing me a little bit. Was it a civil war or was it um, uh, radical Muslim activity that they were played with a few decades ago? Uh, I think it was more they were trying to get independence from Indonesia um, and there were a number of atrocities being committed at the time and then the Australian government decided to step in. Um, so I think so the, the Indonesian forces that were there kind of moved back across the border. Uh, so we sort of got there on the back end of that uh, and there were, you know, there were some mass graves or a few of these sort of things from that period of unrest. Um, but pretty much once we deployed, and I think, it was sort of a multinational thing, so we weren't the only ones. Uh, we worked with some Gurkhas for a time period, uh, working quite closely with them. 
Um, so once we turned up, the Indonesians pretty much stepped back and then there was a few small skirmishes and some sort of militia stuff going on, but nothing, you know, of any real threat compared to what I've seen later on. Right. And this was pre-9-11? Uh, yeah, this was 99, end of 99, sort of 2000. Okay. So that's always interesting as well to me. So, so you, you were selected in the SAS, so you begin your training pre-9-11. I've had a few, you know, members of the military, special operations and, and regular who you know, did, did the training before and then, and then after. Did you notice any big differences between the way you were training pre and then how that shifted to a different type of uh, you know, training and tactic after? Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't go into any real sort of specific detail, um, but we were very much, in, in Australia, we were very much um, focused on a lot of training exercises. So we trained a lot within Australia and exercise around here. So it was a lot more sort of long range, sort of longer duration patrolling stuff. So when I first started my training for special forces, that's kind of what we were focused on because you kind of training just reflects your historical past or, you know, recent events. Uh, And then 9-11 actually happened right towards the end of my training cycle before uh, I became a qualified member and then moved through. So I pretty much came off my training cycle uh, and then deployed within a couple of months after that uh, into Afghanistan for the first time. But even our role then was much different from our role years later because at that point it was after the Americans had pushed through uh, and Afghanistan had become really quiet. So there wasn't much going on. We actually had really good uh, manoeuvre capacity. So we actually did a lot of driving around sort of just in a patrol of six guys, um, which years later is something that you'd never attempt. But at that stage... The threat level was quite low. Um, we had a few sort of, you know, high intense periods, uh, but for the duration, well, the majority of that trip, um, we sort of had pretty good freedom. So even the way we operated from then to years later would change. And then as the threat there changed, uh, we had to evolve to keep up with it. And even our mission and the way we were doing business changed. So then the way we were training just reflected the operations that we were doing. Right. And you mentioned that you kind of fell back on your East Timor experience for selection. Was there any uh, progression in your physical, mental resilience as time went on? Were there other things that you started pulling from as well? Um, yeah, I knew I had to get stronger and fitter to get through selection. So I'd always been, well, I had a pretty reasonable aerobic base, uh, but I'd never really done a lot of weights growing up. So I was sort of on the high 70s. Uh, so I'm about five foot 10 weighing, I can't do the conversion from kilos to pounds, um, but around sort of 78 to 80 kilos. And then to carry the loads or the weight that I had to carry once I got into special forces, I knew I had to get stronger and put on a little bit more size. So um, like one of the first things I did when I got through the selection course was go and get, um, I think the only ones available back then was sort of like Joe Wider or uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's muscle encyclopedia, those sort of things. So I just went out and got what resources I could and started getting to work to try and increase my strengths uh, and fitness. Uh, the men, this, the mental side of it, I guess, um, I've always been pretty good mentally. Um, so like even when I was growing up, I used to do a lot of long rides. I'd do runs, these sort of things. Uh, and a tactic I used to use, which sort of the more I learned, the more I understand why it worked, was if I was going for a long run, I never really focused on the end of the run or how far I had to go. I just focused on the next corner or the next hill. I always just kept my points close 
to where I'd, I'd achieve. And then before long, you've achieved enough of those points that you finish what you're doing. Uh, and then when I was doing selection, I pretty much used the same tactic. So I'd go, because um, you can't really use meal timings on those things because you just don't know when your meal timings are. But, and you don't really have a watch. So it was more like, oh, I'll just get to the corner on this activity or I'll get to the end of this activity and get to the next one. And just using very small or short time periods for sort of um, making my goals. And then once you met them, I just worry about the next one. And then it was pretty much just meet enough of those until I was allowed to go to sleep. I'd go to sleep and then I'd worry about the next day when I woke up. Uh, and, you know, there's some pretty good science as to why that works, but that's something that I've always used. Uh, so the mental side of things, I was pretty comfortable with where I was at. It was just now exposing myself to as many of the job specific challenges that I was going to meet um, and, you know, and sort of with the same sort of attitude that I had going into the airborne, I used in special forces. So I went into a role there that dealt more with the ocean because I'd had very little experience with the ocean and it was just something that I wasn't comfortable with because I grew up in the mountains. So I thought I'll go and, you know, do a lot more work on that side of things and then get exposure to that and sort of move past that discomfort. Now, what do you think gave you that, that mindset and the reason I say that is we're going to talk about you know your extreme races later as well one thing that fascinates me when we're in these organizations it's you can still kind of cruise at whatever level you're at you can do the kind of bare minimum get the job done and then you know transition out or whatever comes next but then you have the people that within those organizations are looking to excel looking to push themselves find hardship like you were saying and then especially once we have left those organizations to keep pushing yourself, keep holding you, you know, yourself to a high standard. When you look back now, what do you think made you, knowing damn well that you didn't feel comfortable around the ocean, deliberately go and seek that out? Yeah, I don't know. It's hard. It is hard to kind of self-reflect on that, um, you know, try and extract the right information sort of thing. But I think from what I can gather, you know, half of it's likely to be genetic. So, um, you know, there is some research that looks at, certain profiles and some people just seem to be more aligned to that way of thinking or that way of doing things. Um, but in my sort of from experience from growing up, I'd definitely say it was probably the amount of time I spent with people who had the attitude that, you know, if you're not comfortable with something, just confront it. You know, if, if there's something that you need to resolve, you, you need to confront that problem. Like you can't hide from things. Um, and just around sort of, you know, very sort of, you know, stoic people, I suppose, for lack of a better term, who just, you know, if something went wrong, it didn't matter. They just had to continue doing what they were doing to get to the point they needed to get to. And then on the other side of that, they'd worry about what they needed to. Um, you know, even watching my old man's behaviours as I was growing up. So he was a, a bricklayer. Uh, and at one point, well, he used to build our houses so a couple of times when we uh, buy some property and build a house he'd build the house so, so like own a builder uh, and one particular afternoon he had a fall and pretty much tore all the skin off the back of his hand um, and it needed a lot of, a lot of stitches but he had to get to a certain point in the brickwork so the trades that came the next day could do what they needed to do um, and so despite everyone telling him he needed to go to the hospital he sort of just taped his hand up as best he could finished what he needed to do and then just went and seen the local doctor um you know, so it's a lot of, you see that and you sort of, you know, there's a point where you need to go and look after yourself if you're in a lot of damage. Um, but you kind of start to develop this attitude that, yeah, if you, if you need to get something done and you're capable of doing it, 
you know, sometimes you just have to get through a little bit of discomfort to get what you need done, done. Absolutely. That reminds me of a, um, a story my dad used to tell me about one of his friends who was a helicopter pilot in the British SAS back in the, the 80s. And this wasn't a, you know, a military-related story at all, but he also had a, a stud farm. And he was clipping a horse one day and the horse kicked um, my dad's friend and basically tore most of his quad off. And my dad said he still stood there, finished clipping the horse before he went over and <laughs> went to the hospital and got his quad sewn back on his legs. So, yeah, it's definitely a different mindset of some of these men and women. Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, there's a, a point where you need to take care of something. Um, you know, but if you see the way people who are really mentally strong conduct themselves, like, you start to understand, okay, well, you know, I'm capable of that as well. You know, why, if my father could do it, why can't I do it type of thing? Um, you know, because kids relate to their parents quite heavily, you know, good and bad. Um, so, you know, just being exposed around him, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, uh, even my grandfather, there was a lot of stories about sort of the toughness he had, uh, but I didn't know him that well to sort of see a lot of it for myself. Um, but it sort of, it definitely all played a role in the mental strength I had. And then once I went into the regiment, uh, I was lucky enough to have a, re a few really strong team leaders um, who had that exact sort of attitude that, you know, if we were given a task, it had to be done. Like we had to find a way to do it. So any obstacle that we came across, we had to work out a way to get through it. And a lot of that was just enduring a lot of discomfort to get the job done. So, you know, that sort of gave me a lot of the understanding or beliefs around leadership as well that, you know, when it's your time to lead, you have to lead. Like you can't just decide that something's tough so you're not going to do it because, you know, you've still got to pass on those attitudes to the guys below you as well. Absolutely. Now, with with you as a parent, you kind of touched on it before about letting kids kind of, you know, get out of their own situations. Are there any parenting philosophies that you do apply deliberately because of that? Not, not to force hardship, but to foster strength and resilience. Yeah, I kind of um, – so I heard a quote from a Green Beret who was quite successful – uh, and he said um, his father went through a lot of hardship, so he sort of learnt from him. But his quote was that his old man, um, I think it was something like he never gave his kids the one thing that he wished he had of, which was nothing. Um, so, so he sort of suggested that by removing too many barriers, he didn't allow them to fully develop, um, you know, but he must have still given them enough because his son went and became a Green Beret. Um, so I sort of like... I won't interfere with anything they can't solve. So I'll never solve a problem that they can solve themselves. Um, and if it's a tough problem, I'll get them to sort of start to exhaust what avenues they've got available to them before I come in and solve that problem. If it's a safety issue, then I'll step in straight away. Um, but if it's just something that I know they can solve, then I won't solve their problem. Like even, um, so our kids are sort of, like most kids at school, there's kind of, Kids torment each other, you know, they're quite brutal at times when they're younger. So there's that line sort of between competitive schoolyard sort of um, attitudes and then when it does overstep into bullying. So, but even for us, we sort of won't, initially we wouldn't step in because we want firstly them to understand whether it's just some, like if it's at soccer, it's not necessarily bullying, it's just kids being competitive. So firstly understand the difference and then, you know, for them to actually look to try and resolve that themselves. Uh, and it worked really well in uh, the few cases we've had it where they'd go through and that actually 
you know, looked to talk to the kid that was harassing him. He was like, okay, well, you know, how come you're upset at me type of thing? Uh, and if it went beyond that, then obviously you start to look at other ways of mediating. Um, but for us, it was always, you know, even physical or mental discomfort is not necessarily a bad thing. So, you know, if they can resolve it themselves, then maybe we need to help it a little bit. Maybe we need to just let it go on its own um, and then step in if we needed to. And that's the kind of attitude we've taken with a lot of things. Um, so we've got two boys, so they fight all the time because um, they're sort of six and eight. But even there, it's like, well, you need to sort out your own problems. You need to work together so that you can work out a way of playing together. Um, you know, and then I think that builds a lot of empathy as well, especially in our oldest one, because he has to understand that if he doesn't give the youngest a chance, the youngest just won't play with him. So he's sort of got to learn to understand of what the youngest capability is in sport or any of these things they're doing and then match that level. Otherwise, you know, there's just an argument and no one gets to do what they want to do. Yeah, well, I think that's a very hot topic at the moment as well because as you've probably seen in the news, we're, we're going through some pretty, you know, uh, troubling times at the moment, it, but you're triggered by a horrendous murder that, you know, a police officer did on, on the, a black man, George Floyd. But, you know, one of the things that's not being discussed is is parenting. Like you, you could destroy, you know, so much of the hate in the world just by raising your kids, like you said, to be tough, but also to be compassionate. You know, don't bully your six year old uh, brother. You know, so it's interesting the the kind of facade I think that you and I grew up with of what a man is. You know, like the Hollywood Rambo Terminator type dude. <laughs> um, but you know that that totally takes any responsibility for kindness and compassion. You know, so so being that strong uh, protector, which obviously you, know, you became, but still having that compassionate side as well. You can't just go around punching everyone in the face. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, well, definitely. I sort of grew up almost with John Wayne and Clint Eastwood as kind of surrogate fathers at some point. Um, you know, with a lot of westerns and those sort of things. But you know, that was for me. That was just TV. So you know, I'm reluctant to blame. TV or video games or anything like that. But, yeah, I think it definitely comes back to parenting. Um, and I'm also a little bit reluctant to uh, sort of harass parenting because I just – it's very difficult to get really good information these days around it. You know, I don't think anyone sort of – or generally most people want the best for their kids. They just probably more so struggle for the right information. So, um, you know, it's a very – an emotional topic um, – you know, because no one wants to think that they're a poor parent. So I kind of don't get too involved in it, but I do look at how parenting develops the right tools or exposures to things develops the right tools and then the belief systems that people have as well. So, you know, if you don't give your kids good beliefs or good values, then someone potentially will. So, you know, I sort of looked at it from the military's perspective where, you know, a lot of these kids are being recruited out of their bedroom and radicalised by these religious beliefs because there's something missing in their life, you know. So you could almost take that same model and apply it to any sort of ideology, um, you know, whether it's sort of, you know, white supremacy or whether it's one of these other ideologies that's going on, you know, they're almost filling a void in some cases. So, you know, I don't want to get too deep into it, but for me, you know, there's a lot more at play here than just what people see going on straight in front of them. Yeah. No, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, well, speaking of that, so some two things I always like to ask any of the, the members of the military that come on. Um, 
to to give a kind of perspective from everyone who's listening that hasn't been on the ground in you know some of these war zones. Um, firstly, you know, regardless of the politics, you know, whatever conflicts are sent our men and women out there and obviously you and your, you know, your fellow operators out there. Was there a moment where you realized, okay, regardless of that, now I'm seeing this horrendous, um, you know, the, these, some of these horrendous acts. And so now, you know, I, I can physically witness some evil that needs to be taken care of. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in Afghanistan, there was there was pure evil in some of the areas we went into. Um, like the level of malice that surprised me of what one human being was capable of doing to another. Um, so a lot of it, like it was very religious, um, you know, and they were quite, they've been quite brutal over there for a long time. Like there's a country that just knows violence um, and war, these sort of things. Like their whole history is plagued with, you know, war and violence. So a lot of it, sort of was control. So you've got these really evil people, most of them were evil men, trying to control the whole population through religious beliefs. And, you know, they're trying their best to not allow anyone to get uh, educated because once you understand, then you can start asking questions. So the easiest way to stop questions is just to have people only believe what you tell them, Um, you know, which comes back to sort of these belief systems. So, you know, the majority of the population we came across only seen us as a threat because that's what they were led to believe. Uh, in some circumstances, when I first went over there, they thought we were Russians. That we'd sort of the rush, the war against Russia was still going and was was still occupying the country. Um, but the reality is, for a lot of them, they just wanted to tend their farms and you know live their life. But you know these, there were these genuine evil groups that we were sort of engaged with that were going around sort of. Um, And it got really complex. So if we went around and sort of looked at trying to provide for a village, then the Taliban would turn up um, and they were fairly ruthless in the way they went about it to assert dominance once we'd left. So we had to be really careful about what we impacted and what we thought we could try and change because there was repercussions to everything. Um, You know, I sort of look at it that often what looks like the easiest solution can sometimes have the worst consequences. So you always need to be aware of the consequence of your solution. Um, And I think that plays out in a lot of things. So, you know, we were sort of quite aware of that. And then our role changed anyway later on so that we're only really after, you know, these sort of higher level individuals. Yeah, well, you you can answer both questions at the same time. And that's what I hear is, you know, that brutality, which I think is important for the people at home to understand, you know, some of the horrendous things that, you know, people are, are suffering in that country. And then also, as you touched on too, that the rest of the country are, you know, fathers and mothers trying to raise their kids, put a roof over their head, put food in their stomach and, you know, give them as, as protected a life as they can whilst living in a pseudo war zone. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times early on, um, we were going around sort of trying to determine the level of threat in different regions. Um, and a lot of it early on was actually just our hierarchy sitting down with the elders and sort of talking about, you know, how they seen us, you know, getting rid of the belief that we were there as a threat or to overrun something. And then we'd look at, you know, what are their problems? You know, do they really want us to interfere with what they're doing? Do they need us to worry about that area? You know, or do we just leave and they carry on with their life? So, you know, a lot of it was actually sort of that sort of ground truth thing where you go out to try and understand what's the real problem that you're faced with, you know, what areas 
do you need to worry about? Who do you need to worry about? And what areas where you can just let them go do their thing? You know, because if you go there in a really aggressive manner, they're going to get defensive and then through, you know, zero communication, you're going to get an escalation in what's going on and eventually something's going to give. Yeah, exactly. Now, obviously, you're out in, in the desert as well. I know Brisbane's not known for its snow, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what? how did you deal with thermoregulation? Because that's something that in the fire service, especially in the southern um, states like Florida, where I am, it is incredibly hard to stay cool while we're working. Did, did you have any challenges? Did you even find any solutions to staying cool in that arid heat? Um. Thankfully, we didn't have too many problems. So I was based in Perth, which is kind of it's the, where the desert meets the ocean, pretty much. So um, there's there's no humidity there, which is probably one of the biggest factors involved in what we were doing. So during the summer, it would get quite hot, not quite comparable to what it would in Afghanistan, because it would get into sort of the low fifties um, when you're talking about Celsius. But again, the heat over there was sort of low humidity, so it would get hot but you don't have that issue of high humidity where you're just really sweating and you're losing a lot of water. Um, so depending on the task we were doing, like guys would get frozen water bottles and put in their pockets here and there to try and act as a bit of a cooler. Um, we'd sort of try and pre-cool using, you know, like slushies, those sort of things where we could. Um, when we're doing longer duration in the desert, we try and take out cold drinks at first, but then after a day or two, everything tastes like a, cup of tea or it is as warm as a cup of tea almost um so it's like you're just drinking hot water all day but then you it was trying to be smart about the way we did things as well so looking for shade where we could you know based on the threat level as to you know how much gear we would have on uh understanding the limitations that we had but you know the reality is is if we were engaged in something through the heat of the day and we had to do a lot of movement generate a lot of heat then that's what we needed to do um we sort of didn't have too many issues. I've seen a couple of guys suffer from heat a little bit, um, but nowhere near as much as what I'd seen when we do training sort of roles into Southeast Asia or if we'd work in the sort of um, Northern Territory or the top end of Australia where it does get quite humid. Um, so I think, you know, probably the fact that Australia can be hot and humid probably almost gave us that exposure um, to deal with the heat uh, and even Timor was probably a lot worse than what Afghanistan was when it came to sort of the heat and humidity. Right. Well, you mentioned putting on the extra mass to to deal with the load that you had to carry. How did your strength and conditioning evolve over your time in special operations? Yeah, so I guess that's um, quite pertinent to what I went on to do. Uh, so early on, I knew that it had a big factor in my ability to perform my job. So um, I knew the fitter and stronger I got, the easier my job would become. And then if that became easier, then my level of competence on everything else could be improved. So, you know, my ability to conduct a task under fatigue is going to rely heavily upon my level of fitness. So I knew that it was, a, it was an important thing for both career longevity, reducing my risk of injury and actual performing under these levels of fatigue that I was going to get to. Uh, and, you know, and we sort of touched on it, or you touched on it before, is that some people sort of cruise um, and there were a percentage of those people there, and I always thought that was quite sort of unprofessional in an organisation like that. I was quite disappointed, actually, that it existed there the way it did. Um, and one of the things that I always swore is that I'd never become one of those people. You know, it didn't matter how far I got through my career, I'd always try and be one of the people that was out the front or sort of trying to, you know, be as good as I could. 
so it sort of started out with early information, what I could, which was mostly around bodybuilding, which was what was available in the early sort of 2000s. Um, and then I didn't have a lot of internet access in the early years. Um, it just wasn't something I grew up with, wasn't something that I was really important. And we were um, fairly busy with work, so it was, wasn't something that I was that interested in and was sort of encouraged not to get too involved with it anyway. Um, and then sort of later on in the years, I sort of came across, um, you know, some of the online fitness programs that were out there and they sort of started changing the way people train. So they, you know, the sort of more functional fitness type things. Uh, so I started looking at a few of those, uh, but there was still within tactical populations or specifically the one we were in, there were still high injury rates around those training modalities. Uh, and a lot of that came down to the fact that if you're so busy occupationally, you can't load yourself in the same way that these exercise programs encourage people to load. You know, you can't just do a lot of high intensity work every day because it's just, there's no rest period in those environments. Uh, so that kind of led me to look in towards sport and then down the sports science path. So um, I think it was probably around about nine or 10 years into my career, I presented a plan to our hierarchy, which would allow me to go and do a bachelor's degree. Uh, I'd bring all that information back to the unit uh, and then help raise a human performance program there while I was still working. Um, it increased my workload by a bare, fair bit, but it was something I was really interested in, so it didn't really impact me too much. I sort of found the time I needed to sort of get that study done. Right. So what did you change? Because I know one of the things that, that's become so apparent now, um, there's a Navy SEAL, Jeff Nichols, who's really kind of opened my eyes on a lot of areas on the recovery side. But, you know, with, with the shifts in, in firefighters specifically, you know, there's, like you said, we're physical training. We're actually training on the fire ground. We're running the calls. We're up all night. And, and I think the recovery element is, is hugely undervalued in the overall tactical athlete. So what, what did you find with your operators? Um, yeah, very similar thing. So the guy, they're guys who, if you tell them to go and flog themselves because they'll get better, they'll go and flog themselves. Like for the, the vast majority of them, like they will do what they think is going to give them the best result. No. So it was a lot of trying to exactly that change the way they thought about more is not better. So sort of reintegrate to them the importance of once you've trained, you now need that recovery period to get the benefit. Without that recovery period, there's no benefit. And if you keep doing it, at some point you move into overtraining and something's going to give, like you're going to get injured. Uh, and we had pretty high injury rates due to the amount of work or the occupational load plus the training load guys were doing. Uh, and they're always busy. Like the downtime in these roles is very limited. Um, I think at one point we'll sort of, up around sort of 60 to 70 hour weeks on average for like a six to eight month period while we're actually just in barracks training um, with some of the stuff we're doing. So, you know, like there's not much downtime there. And there's a lot of mental load as well. And your sort of physical and mental fatigue go hand in hand, like they're not isolated from each other. Uh, so a lot of it when we started looking at the program was looking at the way we trained as more of a maintenance period. So for the majority of the time when you're working, it's more just maintenance training. So you're just looking to improve the little things you can, but just maintain your ability to turn up to work every day. And you're talking as well about a population that's kind of would have retired from sport on average. So, you know, 
the experience from sport is that you've got younger guys, so you can train these guys really hard during the preseason and then maintain them during the season uh, and fluctuate it around travel, important games, these sort of things. Uh, but in the environment I was in, most of these guys would have retired from sport. So they're past that age where you can put that amount of volume through them anyway. So by reducing volume, focusing on recovery, and then just being a little bit more deliberate with exercise selection, we're able to sort of half the injury rate quite quickly. Yeah, well, that's the same thing that we see in the fire service. There's no cycling because there's no seasons. You know, it's it's yeah. 10, 20, 30 years. <laughs> and, and you talked about the work weeks. I mean, they're working, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks a lot of time. 56 is the bare bones minimum on a lot of fire departments before you take any, you know, overtime or forced overtime or extra training. So, you know, you add in the sleep deprivation and, and, and chronically, you know, um, follow that through a career. I mean, you end up with some very broken men and women physically and mentally and i think it's the recovery element that we really need to embrace better yeah definitely i think people underestimate the impact of that sleep deprivation as well or if you can't get into a sleep routine um you know there's a lot of stuff now coming about i think people are becoming more aware um, but yeah if you haven't slept like you're not going to get anything done like you just you're just doing damage pretty much if you haven't recovered properly so i did a a little bit of work looking at circadian rhythms and how that impacted both um, your physical ability and your mental ability around decision-making and that sort of thing. Uh, and even a couple of hours change can result in a 10 to 30% decrease in your ability. Um, so, you, you know, if you haven't slept, like all you need is sleep. You don't need to train. Like You don't need anything else. You just need to reset yourself. And that can take between three to five days if you've missed a full sleep block. Yeah, which is every firefighter, <laughs> any, any, any inner city department. So um, it's interesting you say three to five as well, because that's kind of what I'm pushing towards. There's, there's a there's a 42 hour um, schedule shape shift shape in um, in America here, which would be seven uh, 24 hours straight. Which the inner city departments would literally be straight. You'd be up pretty much all night, but then you have 72 hours to kind of reset. And some of the sleep experts I've had on here have said the same thing as you. That's like the bare minimum you can try and get close to baseline again before you go and do exactly the same thing you know four days later yeah like shift work is really tricky and i i don't even know enough about sleep to even pretend to understand how to solve that problem um but you know like i'm starting to see a lot of stuff now and it's getting reported about the impact long-term sleep disruption has on sort of cognitive degeneration and these sort of things and aging and all that sort of stuff um so, you know, like it's, the news isn't good for anyone in these roles sort of thing. So, like I know we do periods where I might have had three months really good sleep and then I'd have a month of just completely disjointed sleep. Um, like we'd do exercises where we'd stay as a group in sort of old military accommodation which had no curtains. So we'd do a full night cycle, come back to go to sleep just as the sun's coming up. And then, you know, the guys that were next to us, would want to use the gym they had so their music's blaring we're not sleeping and then we're sort of up trying to do another cycle that night so you know it has a huge impact on you but you know there's also the reality that these things need to be done you know i mean like roles need someone there 24 hours so you know i don't know how to answer that question i just know that it's problematic yeah absolutely well i think i mean the answer i think is to just put more people on so you can create more recovery between the two but that's uh that's investing in your people which is a hard sell <laughs> yeah but even the 24-hour shift so they trialed that here with some of the fire servers uh, and there's a real risk of guys 
doing a 20-hour or 22-hour shift where they've been out all night working hard, like they've got to now drive back to their station. So um, I know it has ended poorly here and it's a definite risk, if you know, for someone who's doing those sort of shifts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for your perspective on that because uh, it's it's great to hear from all these different, you know, routes. Um, well, I want to get to kind of transitioning out of the military. So you were, you know, obviously in the SAS, eventually strength and conditioning, you know, your, your peers within that team. Um, what made you decide to transition out? Um, I guess it was sort of, it was a number of reasons. So it came to a point where um, the operational tempo had dropped off. So I sort of spent, including Timor, it was around about 17 years, like within a deployment cycle, which changed over that time. But it was a, a number of deployments and accumulatively it's years of deployments. Um, and then during that, I sort of double or dual-hatted doing the, uh, strength and conditioning stuff and sort of worked up to a point where I was a team leader when I left. Uh, so towards the end of it, uh, my wife, she was busy with her own thing for most of it. So I think that worked out really well for us that she was off doing her own thing. Um, you know, cause we all know that this has a massive impact on home as well. So, you know, there's a whole way that they need to be able to deal with this as well. So she was really busy, which I think helped a lot. So she had her own thing. Um, which was it was still difficult, I think, for her during that period. Um, but then once the tempo dropped off, I'd sort of worked through to um, doing a master's in strength and conditioning. And I was looking at a master's of research around a couple of things I was really interested in. Uh, she got to a point where she was happy with where she was in her career uh, and we decided to have uh, our kids. So it was kind of the, the culmination point of there's not much going on at work, um, we want to have some kids, so I don't want to be away all the time just training. I was pretty happy with the career I'd had. I'd served, been in the Army for almost 20 years at about that stage, um, which I figured was probably long enough. Uh, and then we sort of just wanted a, basically a change where family came first, and I was curious about sport as well. So you know, I wanted to go and have a look at, you know, is the grass greener going into sport as a sort of a strength and conditioning coach, sort of human performance. Um, so... An opportunity came up just through the, like, I think it was probably about eight or nine years of just networking and just uh, going into sports programs, having a look. An opportunity came up with one of the rugby union teams over here, so the Queensland Reds. Um, and my wife was from Queensland, so she, we were sort of happy to come back to here for her because uh, her family's here. And so we thought, all right, we'll go and look at it for, I think it was around a 20-month contract. So we thought we'll go and look at it. Um, I left the door open with the military in case it wasn't what we wanted so I could go back, but uh, it turned out quite well. Uh, so we moved, went into sport, and then she got offered another opportunity here, which she really wanted, but it required one of us to be at home. Uh, so she's gone into sort of frontline work or emergency services now. Um, so I said, all right, if you get in, then I'll resign from sport and I'll come back look after the kids and I had an opportunity on the back of the masters to do a PhD. So I um, qualified to get a scholarship to do a PhD. So I sort of stepped back from sport, uh, now stay at home dad and PhD and sort of bubbling away on a couple of other things. Brilliant. Well, a couple of things. Firstly, what was your transition out? Some people, you know, especially if they have something lined up, seem to do pretty well. Some obviously struggle being part of such a cohesive unit and then kind of being taken from that tribe. What was your personal experience like? Yeah, for me, it wasn't too bad. So it can be clunky. Um, 
but we kind of knew it. So we approached it with the attitude that at some point financially we're going to have to take a hit because um, I just couldn't move into sport and expect to be on the same level I was coming out of the military because I just wasn't being paid for the same level of skills that I was using. Uh, so, and then my wife went into sort of an emergency services role, which was at a starting level as well. So uh, I sort of took long service here, which is paid uh, for as long as I could, which kind of substituted what I was on. And then it got to the point where once I resigned and she took her role, we were on a, a she was on a trainee wage. Uh, so we took quite a big financial hit, but we knew it was coming, so we were prepared for it. Uh, and then it was just a matter of adjusting our lifestyle to suit it. Um, you know, so if you're realistic about what you've got coming in and what you can spend, it's not that difficult. I think it's when you've overcommitted early and you can't adjust probably makes it a lot harder. Um, but the big one was that I was ready. So I did it for the right reason. So I was lucky enough that I chose to leave and I chose so that my kids wouldn't suffer. So I didn't want to be an absent father sort of thing, um, you know, because there's a lot of information around the problems that father absenteeism creates within kids as they develop um, sort of thing. So I just didn't want to take that chance. And I just wanted to spend time at home. I was kind of getting to a point where I was quite tired of being so busy for so long. Um, so I sort of moved out of the military uh, into a role where I was part of another integral team. So when you look at the sort of things around belonging and identity, uh, I moved into something where it was very similar in the way that things were approached. So in a high-performance sport or in, you know, an elite-level team, everyone is very focused. Um, there's some differences, but there's a lot of similarities. So it was easy for me to transition into that. And then like once I transitioned out of that to working on my own, I sort of – it wasn't that big a deal, cause I think, because it was a stepped process. Um, but even towards the end of my military career, I don't think I really identified – as the role I was doing, I think I have just seen it more as this is what I'm doing now. Once this is over, I'll go do something else. Um, and I've kind of had that attitude for a long time. So I didn't completely get indoctrinated into the military way of thinking. Um, so I think then when I left, it, I, I wasn't the military. So that was just what I did for a time period, which I think is probably where a lot of guys struggle. Um, but even within that environment, those people seem to, or the guys from there seem to transition a lot better than a lot of the younger people that are separated from the military um, through sort of non-voluntary reasons. So, so I track some of the, the mental health data here and it seems that it's more of the younger population that's um, discharged for sort of medical reasons or these other reasons out of their control that have the, the biggest issues in then transitioning outside. Um, but I know every country is kind of different, so you can't really apply one model to another country. Yeah, that's a very valid point, though, because the, the identity is something that we see. I think the identity element we see more with the retirees, you know, the, the snatched out of a crew, whether it's um, injury or, you know, whatever it is, then, yeah, that I think that can hit the younger firefighter or police officer a lot harder. But I think the retirees, if all they've known is the fire service, they struggle. If they are transitioning like you did to another role, um, I, I can see how... You know, that tribal element kicks back in and, and you still belong to something. But if all you've known is that profession, you've almost become a kind of caricature of that profession, then those, I think, are the, the men and women that struggle a lot when they do step out for the last time. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I can't remember precisely, I think it's like the Harvard study or one of those, which looks at the path 
I think, for about 50 or 60 years. I can't remember. There's a TED talk on it. Um, and they looked at what was the biggest factor in both long-term health and uh, lifespan. And they found it was your social connections. So moving exactly from that. So if you move from, and the tighter your team, the harder it is to leave. So if you've got a really high functioning team that you feel you're integral to, unless you've got something to go to from there, yeah, it's just emptiness. Like, like it's very easy to perceive your value now as a lot lower because you're not involved in something that is integral to you or integral to other people. So, you know, I think you really need to have something to go to or to try as quick as you can get into something that your perceived value is quite high again, that you can get involved in, that you're a part of, um, you know, because these the power or the strength of your social network seems to be one of the biggest predictors of, you know, happiness really and your lifespan. Absolutely. Well, speaking of teams, um, I saw one article um, that was on you coaching the uh, the Reds and you had them going through a whole like military evolution. So, you know, tell me about about that. What were the uh, what were the trials and tribulations you were putting through and what were some of the, the mental goals that you were shooting for as a team? Yeah, so the Reds were a good group. Uh, so they were when I first got there, they were sort of a bit younger as far as, you know, the relative age of most uh, sports groups or most of the rugby teams. So the coach there at the time, he was a big fan uh, and he'd been through a number of these sort of military boot camps to increase your bonding, sort of show guys what they're capable of because uh, a lot of them have just never experienced this. So, you know, some of these guys are really talented and in rugby they'll come through the, a private school system here where – their talent is pretty much all they need to display. Um, so their pathway is kind of not that difficult. So some of it was around sort of keeping them up, depriving them food, getting them to work beyond what they've done before so they can see just really what they are capable of. Uh, and then sort of getting them to come together as a group and start to solve their own problems. So it was kind of, I sort of didn't get too heavily involved as one of the coaching staff because I'd done these things before. Uh, as part of the sort of Carter staff to other teams. So I was along but didn't really want to get sort of intimately involved with it. I was more there just to kind of make some observations, help out if I needed to, but let the military guys who were running it run it. Um, but, yeah, there's sort of – if you've got a plan going on the back of these things about how you want to build from it, they can be really effective. If it's just – you're exposing them to it for the sake of exposing. Like one of the things is people learn pretty quick how to get into survival mode. Like people will look and adapt so that they can survive. And, you know, there's a percentage of people that will lean into it and take it on. But the majority of people will just look to see, you know, this goes for 48 hours. How do I just get to 48 hours with the least amount of physical discomfort? Um, so if there's nothing on the back of it, it's kind of they get exposed to it. But within a couple of weeks, they've reset back to where they were. Um, so they can be really effective and a lot of these were based on bigger things going forward and then we sort of revisit some of the tasks we did, some of the challenges, the way they came together. Um, and then sometimes it's kind of, it can be used as a way to identify the guys who might not be able to stand up when things get really difficult. Um, but then you sort of, you got to start looking at, you know, team selections, talent, these sort of things, which was something I wasn't involved in, but... Yeah, you know, definitely a consideration within a sporting environment. 
So I thought it was an interesting perspective because you were working with, you know, civilians with the team. Um, my personal experience with the two extremes in, in the fire service, I've talked about this many times on the podcast. Um, my, the, the, it was two where there was an absolute crucible at the front door. There was one specifically, it was just Hialeah in the Miami area where, I mean, they beat the living shit out of us for, for three months solid in the, the Florida heat. And then the following one in California was, was a different type, but it was a huge amount of work again. And, and the probation, the full year, you were absolutely in fear of your job. But what I witnessed, those versus especially the last one where there was no expectation when you walked through, you literally just, you know, walked in. That was it. You were part of the team is where there was that test. Firstly, there, there was a much higher level of skill and, and commitment and even job appreciation. But there was also a lot more team cohesion once we had been through such a, you know, a rough crucible uh, of training. So what was your observation of you know, the team building and cohesion and brother sisterhood element, um, of, of applying that stress versus, uh, you know, the, the polar opposite. Yeah. Um, so I witnessed very similar things, uh, when I was doing my special forces stuff and they're sort of, I don't think you can replicate the same team building environment from the tactical populations that you can into sport. Um, and the reason that I kind of think that is that, so when I was, went through the selection process and then you do all your training. It was back when training itself was almost a quasi survival course. So, you know, if someone made an error, everyone was doing push-ups. you know, there was always group punishments. There was a lot of training going on. It was, a, it was a tough environment. Like you said, you kind of just got, you turned up to work, you got beat up while you were learning. So, you know, you get really close people because people bond through adversity um, if they're given the opportunity to on the other side. So we'd go and have a hard day at work and then we sort of get together at sort of in these informal areas like having dinner, these sort of things, because you all live there. Um, and then the weekend you go out, have a few beers. So you, there's always this hard work as a group and then an opportunity to bond together as a group. So, you know, we had really close guys at the end of all this. Then years later we sort of worked out that that's not how people learn. We need to be more mature in the way we teach people and we've – Put everyone through a filter anyway so we don't need to keep belting them up to see what they're made of uh, so then we focus more on learning so we had a higher level of competence coming off these courses um, but but i don't really think it impacted the cohesion too much either i sort of think there's probably more mental strength potentially from previous years because people had just been through more but the guys we had were still capable of it when it came to it. So I don't think there was any real big trade-off. But then when you go into sport, there's too many variables in there and differences between players. So when you start introducing, and this is more my opinion, um, when you start introducing different wage structures and these sort of things, I think that starts to change things where the beauty in the tactical environment, everyone in the training is on the exact same level. Like everybody is the same. There's no discrepancies between anyone when you go to sport you know if i'm worth a million dollars and someone's worth two hundred and fifty thousand, then you know why wouldn't they look at me and expect four times the amount of work coming out of me or four times the amount of performance or this sort of thing so i think it can get a little bit difficult because there's always going to be comparisons going on between people um and you know and, and i think when people make comparisons it gets really dangerous uh, and you know i'm not a psychologist so I'm not, i can't really dissect that too much but you know if you're making comparisons then 
there's always going to be issues. And I think in, within a sport environment, it's, it's easy for that to start to happen. You know, there's always perceptions around favourites when it comes to selection time, these sort of things. So um, it can be very difficult. It's a much more complex environment, I think, to create these really high-performing cultures. Yeah. Well, that's what I find is good about, like you said, the tactical space, you know, tactical athletes is, you know, a group of firefighters. Like we, we've got, you know, examples where they've gone way too far. We have this, um, this, uh, week they call smoke divers and is, is excellent now. But I think in, in the past, it used to be just a week of beating the shit out of them. Whereas now it's evolved now. And, and there's one specific one in Georgia that's very known for this where yes, it's adversity and, you know, it's people tap out and it's extremely hard, but they're learning self rescue and, you know, search techniques and, and all these different things. So they're balancing that knowledge with that adversity so that it's not purely about punishment, but it's not a walk in the park either. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cause I think one of the risks is if you go hard on people, they learn that the only path forward is to go hard. And I kind of, I came through that pathway and this has kind of almost brought me unstuck a couple of times in my sort of solo adventure racing is that, you know, adversity isn't always the answer to, or sort of overcoming adversity isn't always the answer to everything. At some point you have to let go of the fact that you can't just tough this out. You need to be a bit smarter. Um, you know, and it's a couple of times I've been close to a point where if I kept going, I'd be in real trouble. So it's almost, I had to be confronted with the fact that, my own sort of stupidity around toughness almost cost me. Um, so there's definitely that balance of understanding, you know, one, when you need to lean into something just to get through it and when toughness is not the answer. There's a much better way of doing it. So, you know, we used to always say work smarter, not harder, um, you know, and there's a time for both. And the only way to really tell is to have really good leaders or experience, you know, to be able to understand when those patterns present themselves for you to be able to, accurately understand um but yeah it is a genuine risk that's for sure and then you sort of i have seen differences as sort of younger people come through about what they've been exposed to so what they understand is their limits around what they can confront and these sort of things but you know i genuinely don't think they're not capable i think it's more of a case of they haven't just been exposed to it that's all they just haven't developed those skills and tools that they need for these situations. Yeah, brilliant. Well, you spoon fed me the, uh, the segue. <laughs> so you mentioned, uh, solo <laughs> adventure racing. Um, so you have, you know, had a career in special forces. Then, then you're a strength and conditioning coach for the rugby team. Now, you, you know, you're, you're a stay at home dad. You have the opportunity to, to rest on your laurels now and, you know, just, just do some online stuff and some, some speaking and research. But you chose to also just, put yourself through a horrendous task as well so tell me about firstly the again the mental decision to decide to find one of the most challenging events on the planet and put yourself through that yeah like most things it kind of it just it's there before you realize it so i started small um so i started years ago on operations actually i was there with another uh individual and we're sort of talking about what challenges we could do because at that stage we were young you know sort of you could probably speculate that it was as much about proving ourselves as anything else within these environments. Um, and we came across the Marathon de Sabs, which was the, uh, I think it's a six-day, 240-kilometre marathon through the desert um, that's broken up into daily stages. And we're sort of looking at it, but the logistics of getting there were too difficult. 
So about a year later or two years later, um, there was a similar race being held in Australia. And I thought, and it was probably a three-hour plane flight north of where I was. So I thought, you know, I can go do this and it's the same sort of thing and have a seat and had sort of test myself to see what I'm capable of these things. So I went and did that. Um, that wasn't overly difficult. It was pretty tough, but not too difficult. Uh, and then it sort of, from there, it started growing. Um, and it was more people offering challenges to me. Uh, so I didn't really know about the Yukon Arctic Ultra. Uh, and then I was at work one day and one of the guys came in and said, oh, um, and I probably, he was probably just baiting me. I don't know. He sort of said, have you seen this? You should give this a go. And so I looked at it and then I sort of thought, no, that's, I'm not going to be able to do that. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. And it's probably too far for me to go anyway. And then that kind of plants the seed. And then over time you start thinking about it more. And the more you think about it, the more achievable it seems. And then, yeah, I found myself walking, I think it was around 430 to 450 miles through the Yukon in the middle of winter, dragging a sled um, in temperatures to sort of minus 40 below, um, sort of like minus 40 Celsius. Uh, and that took me 10 days to cover that distance. And then the longer race from that is the Iditarod Trail Invitational, which runs out of Anchorage all the way out to Nome uh, along sort of – it's based on the old um, serum run from, I think, the early 1900s when there was an outbreak of – I think maybe diphtheria or something. Don't quote me on that. Um, so the the mushers took the dogs up there with the serum to save the, all the kids in the town. So it became a mushing race, and then someone thought you could do it on bike, and then someone figured you could do it on foot. So March this year, I completed the 350 mile initial leg of that, which was a qualifier, and hoping to go back next year and do the full thousand miles on foot, which should take me around 30 days. Um, uh, the question is always why, and to be honest, I couldn't give you a full reason, may, potentially because it's there, um, and I'm just curious to see what I'm capable of. So I've always been kind of interested to see you know, what I can physically and mentally put myself through and where my limits are. Um, problem is when you find your limits, it's going to be a really uncomfortable situation. So ideally I don't hit that. Um, but I guess the other one is if, you know, if someone's done it before me, then why can't I do it? as well absolutely well then you know obviously one glaring thing about the story is you've got australia you've got afghanistan you've got east timor the anchorage and the, the yukon um of definitely the other side of the temperature scale so again with thermoregulation how the hell did you manage to train for that yeah um the beauty is going from hot to cold is a lot easier so the acclimatization process is not as difficult so like if I was going from the Yukon to the Australian desert, it wouldn't work. Like that would be a fail straight away um, because you just can't acclimatise to that level of heat where going the other way, you know, if you're cold, you put more clothes on type of thing where, you know, frostbite is always a genuine risk and I was always uh, have been very aware of how long I'm exposing my extremities to, like my fingers and my toes to the cold uh, and making sure I look after myself because in those environments, a lazy decision will cost you. Like if you're lazy or you get tired and you skip something, it's going to cost. Um, so I've always tried to maintain good awareness around what I'm doing and never get to a point where I'm in too much trouble. Um, but it can kind of – it creeps up on you faster than what you think. Um, but, yeah, definitely training in Brisbane because it's the summer here when I was training to go to the winter in the northern hemisphere – uh, there's a lot of runs. So I do a lot of trail running here around sort of, it's called a mountain, but it's not really a mountain when you look at, you know, other um, range areas throughout the world. 
Uh, but I think it's around about a, a five, 600 meter elevation change. So it's enough for what I want. Uh, so I'll go and trail run around there, uh, but it's during the summer here. So like it's in the heat and then it's just a case of making sure I've got, I'm hydrated enough and I'm smart about what I'm doing. Um, but you know, there's no option. I've got to get that volume in. So I've got to expose myself to the distance and also the heat as part of it. Um, but as far as going from heat to the cold, it's just a case of trying to do sort of cold plunges here before I go. And then when I get there, it's just a lot of intermittent exposures uh, over sort of the week, week and a half I get there to try and adapt to that cold as fast as I can. Right. Well, earlier on, we touched on fear. You, you, you were talking about that as part of your research as well. What about the psychology? I mean, not only is this an incredible, you know, incredibly challenging physical feat. I mean, mentally you're out there in the wilderness, extremely vulnerable to to the elements. How did you overcome the fear element? Yeah, well, the first one I did, I was really new to the experience of what I was going to see out there. So I'd done a little bit of cold work, but not to the level that I was going to. So as far as sort of understanding the patterns or cues in front of me as to how I should respond in that environment, I'd literally had no experience. So I went and asked a, a number of the guys I know who are quite uh, knowledgeable in these areas or like instructors in these sort of things to try and prepare myself as much as I could. Uh, and then I'll do a lot of mental rehearsal stuff where it's not so much visualising positives, it's more visualising what can go wrong, like what could I be confronted with and what is my response options to it. Um, and that's probably something that happens in the military a lot, and I use this throughout my whole career. Um, in the military, though, you'll go and rehearse those responses, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same in the fire brigade that you'll do contingency plans and then you go rehearse them, and the ones you can't rehearse, you kind of visualise so... If you see that evolving in front of you, you know what the response is. So you don't have to waste time trying to come to a decision. You know how to act straight away because obviously the faster you can act on something, the quicker you can resolve it and get back to where you need to be. Um, so I spent a lot of time sort of rehearsing, visualising, just trying to understand what I was going to be confronted with. Um, but, yeah, there was always a fear. Like there was a, and I, I was never comfortable with the cold anyway. I was never a big fan of the cold. Um where now I'm a lot more comfortable with it just through that knowledge and understanding. Uh, but again, like that side of it was confronting something that I just wasn't comfortable with. Um, so it was more sort of what was I afraid of? What was the rationale behind it? Was it anything I need to be afraid of? And what can I do to mitigate the risk of that turning into a problem? Uh, and when I went to Alaska, they sort of talk about there that you pack your fears. Uh, and I'd already packed my sled or the polk as it's called before I heard that so I went home and unpacked it to see what I'd overpacked to see where my fears were um, and it was kind of around overflow and falling into cold water so I was heavy on sort of what happens if I get wet and that was mostly just through lack of experience of being wet when it was minus 30 because uh, you know that presents as a real problem. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to the, um, you know, to, to your work as far as your you know, academic side as well. So what are some of the things now, you know, through this incredible journey that you've been, that you're starting to, to understand psychologically that you're applying to these tactical audience and business audience and other, other groups that you're working with? Yeah. So the big thing with my research is, so it's still back in the tactical population. Um, but it's looking at how you prepare for these sort of high con high consequence, high risk sort of, you know, high pressure environments 
through all the training that you do on the way in. And um, it appears through all the research that I've done, I'm doing in the middle of a systematic review at the moment, which is looking uh, at a few, it's looking at a very relevant topic, but I won't go into it at the moment. Um, but it's mostly through exposure and a lot of it is developing an understanding of the cues or sort of the situational patterns that you're going to see in front of you and knowing what the appropriate response is. So if you've rehearsed it or you've seen it, or even if you've spoken about it in enough detail, you that's part of your response now. So if you see what you think is a pattern, you know the response to it. So again, it cuts down that time that you need to go through a decision-making cycle because in a lot of these environments, you know, seconds matter. Like seconds are, are crucially important to getting the outcome that you're after. So if you need to analyse a problem and solve it, that's taking up a lot of time. So you almost need um, these sort of... Um, like an immediate response to it as almost a habit. Uh, but it's kind of you have to be flexible enough as well in the pattern recognition so that you're not trying to apply the wrong response to a misperceived pattern, if that makes sense to you. Um, so it's and a lot of it's a, around how you structure your training. Uh, and then as a result of that, to try and understand the best intervention, I've been looking a lot around a number of different factors involved in, you know, how someone has their understanding of what a threat is at the moment uh, because everyone's kind of threat perception comes from what they've been exposed to. So, you know, what I see as a threat is going to be different from what you see as a threat based on the environments that we've had. Um, you know, even in a lot of these tactical environments, a threat in one urban area might be different to a threat in another urban area. You know, like the threats I had in Timor were different from what I had in Afghanistan and they evolved over time as well. So I'd be able to update my sort of threat cue identification so I knew what was a genuine threat so that I don't sort of make a false positive and think that something that's not a threat is a threat, um, you know, because you want these decisions to be you know, as accurate as you can because there's no room for mistakes in these environments or there's very little room to make errors um, sort of thing. So I'm looking at a lot of where these models come from, how pressure impacts that and how sort of people perceive pressure, um, you know, and then sort of the other side of it is can we prepare people suitably for these environments so that when they come out on the other side, there's less trauma for them or there's been a lower impact of this trauma. Um, you know, like the reality is, is that there's always going to be trauma in the world. Like the world's always going to have an element of chaos, you know, but how do we prepare people better to confront it, solve the problems and then less have less issues post-trauma um, sort of thing. So it's, it's crossing over into sort of psychology, neuroscience, um, motor skill acquisition, coaching science, these sort of things. And I'm coming at it from a motor skill acquisition perspective as to how do I apply these other sort of sciences to it. Um, you know, because when we look at the human body, it's not isolated by one science. Like it's a collective of all these sciences, but for the sake of qualifications, we isolate each other into these certain groups when we're doing our educational qualification sort of things. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, there's a very pertinent parallel with um, you know, law enforcement, you know, and I've seen, you know, incredibly good, incredibly bad you know, on video, you know, in in person, um, and you know, the, for to put it in a fire service perspective, 
we have the great departments that will put together scenarios. There will be the, t- the, the, the tasks themselves. Ideally, you would have drilled them over and over and over again. Then they're going to add a level of stress. So now you have the same exact movement under stress. Then you're going to actually add decision making into it. And then conversely, you know, for example, law enforcement, if the only time that you're discharging your weapon is six rounds to qualify in a, in a shooting range once a year, and there's no, you know, unarmed training, for example, those are two very, very, you know, different ones. Whereas if you're taking these, you know, combatives classes and you're drilling, um, you know, handcuffing and that kind of thing over and over again, like you said, the, the more you train, the less of a threat anyone becomes. This thing still potentially could be a threat, but you have the tools, you have the strength, you have the muscle memory to, to deal with them. I, I see again when we, when we're talking about, um, you know, the, the spectrum that the good departments, whether it's fire, EMS, police, understand the importance of drilling and understand the importance of, of doing scenarios under stress so you can as closely replicate as possible the scenario that an officer, a firefighter, or a paramedic might be put under when a life is at stake. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, a lot of the stuff I'm looking at initially comes from law enforcement and it's around sort of... Um, and sort of behaviours around shooting and that sort of thing. And, you know, a lot of police departments will, exactly as you said, they'll have, you know, six to ten rounds and they'll have a qualifying shoot that they do once to, once a year. Um, but it's purely just a marksmanship skill. Like there's no identification process involved in that. There's none of no other cognitive process going on. So, like, when they're doing this, or their marksmanship training or their validation shoot. So they're in a sterile environment where there's no other information that they need to process. But as soon as you're in a position where it's you perceive it's life or death, like the stakes obviously are a lot higher and the pressure goes up immensely. Um, like fear of death is probably one of the greatest fears that I've seen as a – like it's a motivator, that's for sure. Um, but that also – inhibits a lot of the cognitive processes that are involved in the execution of the motor skill that is required for marksmanship or accurate marksmanship. So all the resources that you're using on the range from a cognitive perspective are no longer available in this environment because now they're threat focused. And when you identify a threat and your sort of vigilance or your anxiety goes up, people will focus purely on that threat or they'll look for other threats within the environment. So they become, like your ability to shift from threat to task relevant information is really inhibited. So you pick up the threat faster, you spend more time focused on it. And then for something like marksmanship, which has a the quiet eye period at the end of it to allow for an accurate engagement, that's cut right down. So that skill degenerates really quickly because of the cognitive process, not because of the actual skill acquisition so you could be very efficient but as soon as you've got that level of arousal that's hijacking all these other functions then that skill can't be executed to the same level so you know you risk the 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 risk there is that you might identify or misidentify a cue which is neutral as a threat because we're negatively biased as a survival thing so you might misidentify or have a false positive over what you think is a threat so now you've got the risk of making mistake but you're also not very accurate with your execution so 
you know, a lot of these engagements, I think the accuracy rate in real life situations is lower than 50%, where on the range it might be as high as 90%. So there's a big breakdown in these skills and a lot of it appears to be just through the way we're conducting or these environments or organisations are conducting their training where you see the ones that have a lot of reality-based training or they're simulating events as close as they can, they're inoculating these people against the pressure because now they're used to having this cognitive function under pressure. So they're learning the motor skill that's coupled with the cognitive requirement to process all this information. Um, And then when you sort of look at more complex environments where on a tactical thing, you might have multiple people, you've got multiple rooms, you've got, you know, you've got to understand where you are within an environment. You've got a lot more information coming in to sort of locate yourself. You're sort of 3D mapping your environment. You're trying to understand where everyone else is, what's coming up, these sort of things. So, you know, you need that cognitive function available to you. And that ability to process is finite. So once you start degrading that through pressure, then, you know, something is breaking down. Yeah, no, it reminds me of um, a story I had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on who did, uh, wrote On Killing and On Combat and he talked about a specific um, uh, officer-involved shooting where the officer was killed, I believe, and when they found him, if I've got the story right, he had brass casings in, the ha- in his hand and I think what had happened is in the range, they always had to pick up their brass immediately or they get shouted at and he'd literally done muscle memory and while he was picking up the grass, the, the grass, the, the brass was actually shot. And, you know, again, like you said, he was so focused in on that one channel that had been drilled over and over again that he totally, you know, I guess lost awareness of, of the actual exterior and sadly was killed. Yeah, yeah, I've heard similar stories about like police disarming a suspect with a knife. And then because they've trained all the time to hand the knife back, they've handed the knife back. Um, yeah, like there seems to be a large number of the circumstances where someone has just conducted a training routine in a real life scenario. Um, you know, so you need to be careful of what you're doing because it's very easy to mistake activity for productivity in these environments. You know, you, you're not just keeping people busy by doing some training. You could be having a negative impact through what you're doing, um, especially when it comes under pressure because you're just going to do what you've done the most. You know, it's, it's very difficult to change pattern recognition or conduct a different drill when you're under pressure like that like the ability to inhibit a response takes a lot more energy or cognitive function than the ability to conduct something so if you're trying to inhibit something that you've trained in so you can get the correct response like that takes a lot of power yeah i think that that phrase you fall to your level of training is is exactly right you know if you're training with that reality um, you know, that fear drops you down to wherever you've been drilling. Well, if that <laughs> that place you've been drilling is hardly ever, then you're going to be in a really shitty place when you need to perform. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and then sort of like some of that I even looked at in sport. So like a, how many sports teams are really going through match-specific stuff they're going to see and how many are just kind of training based on the way they've always trained. You know, like it's like a different context, but the cognitive principles still apply and then – you know, when you go into business, people there that aren't used to pressure, as soon as they're put under that higher perceived level of pressure, they just see threat, you know, and in business, you need to see the information required to look for opportunity, where if you're just seeing threat things, um, that's all you see, you just see more of it. And as your vigilance goes up, so does your ability to detect threats within your environment. And, you know, like these days, 
most threats that people see are emails with specific words that they're filtering for. You know, it's things on your phone, text messages, these sort of things. It can even be the name that comes up on your phone when it rings if that person or if you usually have sort of uncomfortable interactions with that person, as soon as you see that name, your vigilance goes up. So your threat detection goes up. You've identified that, you know, this isn't going to go well for you potentially. Yeah. I had a, a retired baseball player, Logan Bell Galbrick on, and, and he had made an interesting observation of getting into flow and he had one specific flow moment in a, in a game, but he was talking about that combination of, you know, that, that mental calmness in the first place the exterior stress, which in his case was, you know, an important game, an important pitch, but then the repetition behind it. And he said, you know, that was, that was when you got into flow. And it makes so much sense in what we do. You're never going to perform. You're going to either be in fight or maybe even flight as a tactical athlete if you haven't put those, those reps in whatever skill you're drilling. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, like a lot of that comes for me, the amount of time I spent overseas, like it's, blatantly apparent um in combat you know like the first time you're involved in a gunfight to you know a hundred gunfights later like it's a completely different process and then you look at the new guys who you know are often slow for that initial period while they're trying to make sense of you know is this going to go how i want it to go because they don't have that real world experience to be able to just go straight into maneuvering what they need to do um you know, and I made a comment years ago. I was talking to somebody. It was like, the beauty of a gunfight is that it's really easy to get into flow because all the factors are there. Um, you know, like I've never been more goal orientated for an outcome in my life than in something like that. Um, you know, there's high risk. You know, it's an immersive environment. It seems to have all the factors that are associated with flow. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, you talked about you know uh, coaching and and putting. You know, your your training and, and information out there. So tell me about Comanche. Yeah, so I've sort of um, started a sort of side project that I will grow over the next couple of years as I sort of get through more of my research. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of starting off as a consulting company looking sort of back towards the tactical environment, uh, sport and business, which is around an opportunity to get out both all the academic stuff I've learned over the years uh, around sort of total human performance, you know, the physical, the mental side of things, uh, and then sort of passing on a lot of the anecdotal stuff I've learned through all these years of combat deployments through all this adventure racing, these sort of things about understanding, you know, how do you achieve a really long-term goal process? Like, Because if I want to go to Nome successfully next year, like there's a lot of barriers between where I am now and getting there. So, you know, what's the process involved in overcoming all the obstacles between me and that sort of thing. So it's sort of passing on both the knowledge from the, the research and academic understanding and then sort of the ad anecdotal stuff that I've sort of come across. Brilliant. And where, where can people find that online? Uh, yeah, so uh, I've got social media. It's just under myself, so Dan Cooper underscore MSC. Uh, and then it's just Daniel Cooper on LinkedIn or Comanche Group. Uh, and then the website is comanche.com.au. So it's uh, spelled K-O-M-A-N-C-H-I. Uh, that sort of has some blogs and some videos and that sort of stuff just to try and get out small amounts of information just when I'm not busy with my PhD stuff. 
Yeah, I looked at a couple of videos. They were fantastic. Very, you know, simple concepts presented very well. So thank you for that because it was free content. No, my pleasure. Yeah, no, I've just got to um, try and improve my sort of video recording. And to be honest, a lot of that was becoming comfortable going from an environment where we were always in the shadows. Like, you know, you never want to raise your head above the parapet, so to speak, uh, to become comfortable public speaking sort of thing. So, you know, a lot of that was actually me trying to get the skills to stand there and give information out. So, um, you know, for me, I'm always looking for a way to overcome a discomfort or change a limiting belief that I've got. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm going to do some closing questions so I can let you go. I know we've been going on already past 90 minutes. So thank you for being so generous. Um, yeah, that's right. First question, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be something we've discussed today or something completely different. Um, I don't know. I, I knew this question was coming and I thought about it, but I still don't know. <laughs> um, so I try and think my reading really diverse. Sort of thing. Uh, if, I, if I was going to suggest somewhere to start, and especially now, it would be anything that Brene Brown has written. Um, so five years ago, I probably would have told you that vulnerability was weakness, uh, and I never would have allowed myself to be vulnerable, but I read a lot of her stuff, watched her videos, these sort of things, um, and sort of come to the understanding that it's actually a strength. So uh, I re like she would be one of my first books that I'd suggest reading. Um, and then there's so many other good books out there at the moment, you know, like there's no shortage of really good books available on any specific topic. So it just depends on what people are after. Uh, but I try and keep it diverse. Uh, I sort of Blinkist has like a free daily read. So a lot of times I'll read that um, just so I'm getting stuff outside of my belief system as well, you know, because it's sort of um, have a reasonably good understanding of uh, confirmation bias. So I'm, sort of make sure I'm not just scanning for things to support my uh, previous understandings. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't know, probably just as diverse as you can and then something that interests you, I suppose. And then, you know, I'll, I'll do some nonfiction stuff here and there as well just as sort of like a, a cognitive relaxation point just so that it's not constantly information coming in that I need to process. Brilliant. Yeah, I think Brene would be a, an amazing guest. I've, I've been trying to get her on, but she's, uh, you know, she gets to choose from all these uh, podcasts that have millions and millions of listeners. So I totally yeah, understand like it. it. Yeah, her stuff is awesome. Um, really, really good. It is. So one day, hopefully, we'll see. I'll let you know if I do. <laughs> all right. So the next question, what about a movie? You mentioned Clint Eastwood and John Wayne earlier. Any movies that you love? Um. Yeah, I watch it more of – so there's a few movies that I will watch every now and then. So they're more sort of like your big movies. So like First Man, uh, The Martian, sort of Interstellar, like movies that are about really big concepts type things. So I kind of enjoy those. Um, so I think like Moneyball is another one that I enjoy, just kind of thinking outside the usual. Um, but, yeah, a lot of times I'll just sort of – watch movies just for the sake of not doing anything else. I really don't even watch the movie that intently. It's just so that there's nothing going on in my life for an hour and a half. Um, but, yeah, I got sort of drawn towards, like, your really big epic movies. Excellent. What about documentaries? Any of those that have really kind of resonated with you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I sort of watched a lot of historical stuff where I used to. Um, I'm, I don't know about documentaries at the moment. I sort of... I'm not too sure how many documentaries now have an underlying theme to them, so I'm a little bit 
uh, off documentaries at the moment, but more historical stuff. Perfect. All right, then last question before we, we make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? Um, a lot of it's actually physical training. So I'll go for like trail running for me is one of my go-to decompressions. So um, like sometimes I'll listen to a podcast, but it's just it's background noise for most of it. Other times it might just be a bit of music or I'll just I'll have nothing. I'll just run. Um, and that's sort of my understanding is there's two two scientific reasons why I really enjoy that. Um, but I've just always intuitively known that I enjoy getting out, just doing light, easy stuff. Um, so the first one is sort of – actually, it's probably three. So one is if you're in a role where there's a lot of stress, getting out and doing low aerobic activity actually releases a lot of that stress. So like there's some changes in the hormone function, these sort of things that are beneficial, plus it kind of – it is almost a stress release in itself as long as it's low intensity. As soon as you go high intensity, then you maintain all these stress markets. The other one is – the outdoors just seems to be relaxing for people. Um, and there's been some work around gaze behaviors that shows that when you're out in a more panoramic environment, your gaze pattern changes and it actually reduces your level of vigilance. So there's sort of these two impacts that it has to actually reduce your level of stress. Um, so for me, yeah, outdoors running or just training outdoors is the go-to. Um, or, you know, just watching a movie that has no real theme or plot to it just so that I'm not doing anything that I need to think about. Brilliant. And those those are two of the most popular answers as well, along with obviously spending time with family for for mental health as well. You know, I mean, the, yeah. the healing power of nature and like you said, the, the low intensity exercises uh, definitely seem to flush out a lot of the, the bad hormones. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know whether spending time with my kids is a detox or not. <laughs> inflammatory <laughs> it depends uh, no, on the great, age <laughs> yeah i've got great kids but they're, they're not like kids aren't easy let's just say that very true okay so so you told us actually how to find you online so um i just want to say thank you so much it's i'm so glad that mick connected us your perspective is you know yet another unique and you know diverse perspective between your your early years and then the special operations community finding strength and conditioning and then transitioning back out so thank you for you know being so generous with your time and 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 kind of speaking to the audience out there yeah no it's my pleasure um like i've got a really big passion on giving back to the tactical community um you know i mean like one thing i observed is that these are people who are willing to sacrifice and give up a lot uh, they don't ask for much in return but being part of a really big organisation, like you can kind of get left to your own a lot. So I'm really big on getting out good information and trying to help these guys. You know, it's not uh, negative on the organisation, but because they're so big, it's really difficult at times to be so personal to everyone. So, um, you know, it's an absolute pleasure to come on sort of thing. And if anyone is after a little bit more information, I'm, kind of, I'm happy to sort of help out with anything I can. 